So as I just mentioned, uh, this morning's passage, it, it brings us to the last stop on the train, so to speak, the end of the journey to Jerusalem, which began roughly 10 chapters ago. So this is uh, surely the, the lengthiest uh, season in this series, so to speak, uh, that we've worked our way through, going all the way back to chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him, for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's the city in which Jesus' very own words would be fulfilled, the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah. Everything throughout the course of Luke's gospel account, helping us to see just how desperate we are uh, for Jesus to have made that journey down the Calvary Road. Jerusalem, the goal, the focal point of where this story's been headed for quite some time, which is why we're told, picking up this morning's passage in verse 28 of chapter 19, and when he, Jesus, had said these things, just having shared the parable of the ten minas, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Keep in mind that, that at this point, people are pouring into the city in droves, having come for the annual celebration of Passover. It's that time of year. That according to the Mosaic law, the, the journey to Jerusalem for Passover was required of Jewish men, though many women and children made the journey year after year as well. In fact, the annual Passover feast brought in upwards of six times the normal population. So we're, we're talking about as many as 200,000 people around the city of Jerusalem at this time and as many as 100,000 sheep for temple sacrifices. There's a lot going on in the backdrop of this morning's passage we're talking about a several days long rehearsing and celebrating of the story of the Exodus, God's rescuing of his people out of uh, Egyptian enslavement. Over a million Israelites walking away from 400 years of bondage in a moment in redemptive history that, as many of us know, establishes one of the great motifs of Scripture. God bringing about freedom from enslavement, freedom from bondage. It's what we know Jesus to do. It's that great story of redemption in which Jesus will find himself immersed throughout the course of what we now refer to as the Passion Week. For the remainder of our study of the book of Luke, that's in the backdrop. People running around the city of Jerusalem, feasting with friends and family, singing and praying in the temple courts, surrounded by the sacrifice of thousands of paschal lambs. Jesus himself aware of where this story's headed. He's already said as much three different times predicting his death and resurrection. He courageously continues to make his way to the city of Jerusalem, knowing that a rugged wooden cross awaits. The hostility toward Jesus among the religious leaders just continuing and continuing to grow and grow and grow as this story moves on. Verse 29, Luke tells us, When Jesus drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. How Jesus knew that there was a colt in a nearby village, we're not told. Some believe that, that Jesus and or his disciples may have been familiar with this particular village, while others believe that we may here have an example of the foreknowledge of Christ. Either way, everything that we're about to see in the next several verses, it's all incredibly intentional on Jesus's part. Every last detail as he sends two of his disciples to retrieve a colt, one on which Luke tells us no one had ever sat, suggesting purity 
a consecrated animal destined for an incredibly sacred moment in redemptive history. In this case, the cult of a donkey tied up with its mother, according to both Matthew and John's accounts of this very same story. Now, it's going to matter in a moment, that little detail. Verse 32 tells us that those who were sent away, they found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Maybe Jesus had arranged for this particular moment uh, to happen in a previous village. Maybe that was the code phrase, the Lord has need of it. Perhaps the, fa- the fame of Jesus of Nazareth had simply spread to these men. Either way, the owners of the cult give the cult to the two disciples, owners plural, indicating that we're not talking about wealthy individuals here. The offering of the cult and its mother, a sacrifice on their part, costly to them, a costly stewarding of that which God had entrusted them. Going back to the parable last week, going back to Zacchaeus and his encounter with Jesus and his making of restitution and giving to the poor. That's what the kingdom of God does as it penetrates the hearts of people. The fact of the matter, and and many of us know this, the young donkey, it was Jesus's to begin with, right? Rightfully his by virtue of his lordship over creation. Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Or as the Lord declares in Psalm 50, I love this, For every beast of the forest is mine, God says, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. We're stewards. God is the great owner of the creation which he's brought into being. The cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord's, as are the donkeys in a thousand villages. Coming back to last week's parable of the ten minas, are we willing to to offer the Lord what's in our stable, so to speak? Are we willing to make sacrifices for the sake of heaven's king? as he calls us to steward that which he's entrusted us with for the sake of his glory, his name, his reputation. They, it goes on in verse 35. And they, the two disciples, brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, uh, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. It's a very famous picture in Scripture. The triumphal entry. Again, every detail of what's taking place, incredibly intentional on Jesus' part. Jesus didn't need to ride the last mile of the the journey. He's been walking for, for a long time now. Several years of ministry under his belt. Most of that a foot journey. Not to mention the fact that the last mile, it's downhill. What is he doing in this moment? I mean, this, this is the same Jesus who repeatedly had withdrawn from the crowds, who's now making a public demonstration right outside the city of Jerusalem at Passover. This is deliberate on Jesus' part. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, in fact, just as it was written long ago by the prophet Zechariah. Listen to these words, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Long before Jesus was born into this world, the miracle of the incarnation, these words were penned. Here Jesus demonstrates himself to be the promised messianic king. Spoken of in the writings of the prophets of old. One of hundreds of, of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which alone is something with which even the greatest of skeptics has to wrestle. I love the way Kent Hughes says it in his commentary. He says, we must keep ever before us that on the day Christ rode humbly into Jerusalem, the Jerusalem then dominated by Roman pomp and splendor, he was absolutely in control. He was in control the entire length of the Passion Week. The wheel of history, he says, did not crush him as Albert Schweitzer argued in the quest for the historical Jesus. No, Jesus was turning that wheel. Here we have something very different than the prophecy of Jesus' birth in, in Bethlehem, which was foretold by the prophet Micah. A fulfillment of prophecy in that case, clearly owing to God's providence. In the decree of Caesar Augustus that led Mary and Joseph to, to Bethlehem toward the end of Mary's pregnancy. Perfect timing. In the case of the triumphal entry, a purposeful fulfilling of Zechariah's prophecy on Jesus' part. The announcement of the arrival of the promised messianic king in sending for the foal of a donkey. This is fascinating to consider. And this is what I mean when I, when I talk about this glorious both and, as Jonathan Edwards once called the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ. Because on the one hand, the donkey was seen as a royal animal in the days of King David. In fact, there's an account of Solomon himself riding on a, on a donkey in the Old Testament. So that on the one hand, it's a declaration of Jesus's dignity. The disciples laying of their cloak on the foal's back, an act of worship their lifting of Jesus up onto the animal, an act of exaltation. The spreading of the people's cloaks on, on the road, an act of honor and respect. And with the many cloaks, palm branches, according to the other synoptic accounts. The very first Palm Sunday, a rolling out of the red carpet, so to speak, or I guess we'd call it the green carpet in Jesus' day. And yet... Now love this, coupled with Jesus' dignity is his humility as he rides in not on a war horse as kings in his day would, but meek and lowly on the foal of a donkey. In the words of one scholar, a borrowed beast of burden. A declaration that the inbreaking of Jesus' kingdom is not what many may expect. We've talked about that for chapters now. Both glory and humility, both meekness and majesty colliding in the person of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, in articulating these diverse excellencies, says this. There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. There meet in Jesus Christ infinite justice and infinite grace. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite glory and lowest humility. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. There meet, he says, in the person of Christ the deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. There are conjoined in the person of Christ infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. 
in the person of Christ are conjoined an exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme domination, uh, dominion over heaven and earth. In the person of Christ are conjoined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. In Christ, he says, do meet together self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. We could just pray and sing right now. Behold your king, church, in the fullness of his diverse excellencies, beautifully displayed in the imagery of the very first Palm Sunday. Infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem as the most glorious both and the world has ever seen. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. As Jesus draws near to the city in, in this royal procession, the whole multitude of his disciples are reminded of all the mighty works that they had seen. Here's where you'd see a ton of flashbacks if this were truly a Netflix series. The man with the spirit of an unclean demon back in chapter 4, whom Jesus cast out with a word in the city of Capernaum. The healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who was dangerously and critically ill with a high fever. The exercising of Jesus' lordship over the fish of the sea, chapter 5, in filling Peter's boat with such a catch that the nets were breaking and the boat nearly sunk. The healing of the leper, the clean reaching out and transforming the unclean. The healing of the paralytic whose friends ambitiously dropped him through a roof in order to bring him to the feet of Jesus. The exercising of Jesus' lordship over the institution of the Sabbath, chapter 6. And healing the man with the withered hand. The healing of the centurion's servant from a distance, chapter 7, without so much as ever meeting the man so desperate for healing. The raising of a widow's son from the dead in the midst of a funeral procession just outside the town of Nain. The calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, chapter 8, exercising the very power of the divine over the natural world. The healing of a man possessed by a legion of demons. Remember that one? Only to outdo himself in soon after raising Jairus' 12-year-old little girl from the dead. Feeding of 5,000 men and their families, chapter 9, with nothing more than the contents of a little boy's lunchbox. The healing of the woman with an 18 years long disabling spirit, chapter 13, who was so bent over that she couldn't fully straighten herself, that is, until she collided with Jesus Christ. The cleansing of the 10 lepers, chapter 17, Jesus again displaying the divine power and authority to heal without so much as being near. The healing of the blind beggar on the road to Jericho, chapter 18, who recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And the miraculous transforming of the heart of the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel, Zacchaeus, making fourfold restitution for his sin in the wake of an encounter with Jesus Christ. All these mighty works and more flooding the minds of Jesus' disciples in this moment so that they can't help but rejoice and praise God. 
declaring, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Those words, they're a, they're a traditional Passover greeting taken from Psalm 118, one that the people would declare on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. A hymn of praise to the Lord who defeats his enemies and establishes his kingdom. The shouts of glory in those words, echoing the angels in their pronouncement of the birth of Christ, going all the way back to the beginning of this book, chapter 2, where the angels declared glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, the, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy here in the shouts of praise filling the streets just outside the city. Look again at those words, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's what's happening here in this morning's passage. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. The fulfillment of the messianic prophecy in royal procession, the Messiah having come to the great city of Jerusalem to claim his kingdom. And yet, even among those participating in the shouts outside the city, many still had heightened expectations of a political Messiah, one who would overthrow Roman tyranny and give Israel her political independence. There's still the opposition of the Pharisees, which Luke tells us in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Speak up. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I'm reminded of the, the citizens in last week's parable of the ten minas who declared regarding the, the nobleman who eventually became a king where they said, we do not want this man to reign over us. No thank you. The, the citizens in the parable representing the Jewish people, particularly the religious leaders of Jesus' day, those who did not receive him, those who stood in opposition to his message, to his ministry. It's a recurring theme throughout the book of Luke. Here, not only rejecting Jesus themselves, but wishing that others would reject him as well. Notice that, that Jesus doesn't respond, oh, you know, you're right. People shouldn't be worshiping me. Rather, he, he responds the only way uh, that uh, the, the way that only one who believes himself to be the Lord would respond. Right? He's putting C.S. Lewis's Lord, liar, lunatic apologetic on full display right here in his response to the Pharisees. Declaring that, that all of creation was made for the glory of the Lord. So that creation will give him praise if all of humanity fails to do so. According to the Apostle Paul, Romans 8 Paul says, creation waits with eager longing for redemption, groaning in the pains of childbirth until now, waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption, waiting to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That creation is bursting at the seams to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ. The question is, what about us? And I'm not just talking about Sundays. I'm not talking about a compartmentalized Christianity. Yes and amen to, to that, what we do here in, in these spaces. But when we leave here, 
Are we, are we giving over our responsibility and our blessing to the rocks and the trees? Will we bring him the praise he so richly deserves tomorrow and Tuesday and Thursday? He goes on in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he, Jesus, wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I mean, the truth is that this particular passage in our Bibles could just as readily be called the triumphal, tearful entry. Here you see the story take something of a shocking turn. Crowds rejoicing, the Lord Jesus all the while weeping. Unless that we think that this is anything less than incredibly heavy for Jesus. The word wept in the original Greek carries with it the, the idea of uncontainable, audible grief. It's the language of wailing. Going back to Jesus' words in chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. If I can just get us back to a high altitude with respect to this story for a moment. Jesus looks out on the city that he had visited since boyhood going back to chapter 2. All the many memories flooding his mind. From the moment his parents lost him, came back to find him in his father's house. The moment when Satan tempted him, called him to the top of the temple. The very name of the city, Jerusalem, in part meaning peace. And yet on the cusp of refusing her last chance to escape judgment. Think about this. Fast forward the story. The place from which the gospel would soon go forth to the nations, and yet hear the symbols, symbol of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. A rejection of true and lasting peace and the reconcilement in Jesus between God and man, failing to respond in faith and repentance, as we've seen over and over again in the stories that we find in the book of Luke, like the blind beggar on the road to Jericho, like Zacchaeus after hurrying down from that tree. Jesus looks out on the city of Jerusalem and he sees everything that the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son represents. A people standing on the outside looking in. The sound of music and dancing so close they could feel the thump in their chest. The smell of the feast so near that they could taste it. All the while missing out on the peace and joy of knowing the mercy, grace, and forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, in failing to trust them, him as their savior, in failing to receive him as their king. Do our own hearts break for those living in rejection of Jesus? Do we mourn for a world filled with sin and lost in sin? In the words of one scholar, we know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. The church, she was never meant to turn in on herself. The story of Luke, the story of Acts, is the story of gospel and kingdom spread. 
Jesus goes on in verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You missed it. Going back to chapter 17, Jesus had said, behold, the kingdom of God, it's in the midst of you. The inbreaking of the kingdom, it's right in front of you. Not in the visible, observable expression that, that they might have been expecting, but right in front of them nonetheless. As it is for many church-going people, week in and week out. The visitation of God in Christ. Jesus says, you did not know the time of your visitation. Harkening back to the very first chapter of this great book of the Bible, Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited, there it is, he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. The messianic fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the visitation of almighty God himself, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the horn of salvation, the horn symbolic of strength, a strong savior, mighty to save his people from their sins. And yet, in rejecting Jesus, Jerusalem would know not the rescue of God, but the judgment of God in the soon-to-come destruction of the city and her temple. Such would be the case for over a million Jews who were killed in the besieging of the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., an act of judgment on the Jewish people in the wake of the rejection of Jesus and his kingdom. And so too will be the case for many when Jesus comes again with the clouds. As I've said over and over again, these, these red letter words of Jesus in the book of, Lu of Luke, they're weighty. Eternity is at stake. The stakes are high. Luke goes on to tell us in, in verse 45... And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Again, high altitude. You, you may recall that, that the book of Luke began at the temple with an angel of the Lord appearing to Zechariah in the holy place. So that here, the, the story fittingly comes back around full circle as the good news that was heralded, heralded to Zechariah now stands in the temple. Yet another fulfillment of the prophets of old, in this case, the final words of Old Testament prophecy, the book of Malachi, chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger, that is John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Here, Jesus Christ the Lord stands in that very temple. And what does he see? but a den of robbers where a house of prayer should be. Money changers in the temple courts exploiting people as Zacchaeus had, had once done and trading out currency at burdensome prices, knowing that, that those who had traveled from elsewhere to Jerusalem for the Passover, that they needed a, a form of local currency in order to pay the temple tax. They took advantage of that. In addition, there were those overcharging those same pilgrims for animals required of temple sacrifices. Oxen, sheep, pigeons, 
all being sold at a high price, defrauding people. The temple, it was, it was intended to be a house of prayer, a light for the nations. Again, so many Old Testament references this morning. In this case, Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7, where we're told, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, here it is, shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all peoples. Jesus, he, he sees a house of prayer bustling with the noise of exploitation so that what had been established as the house of God had become a, a place of religious corruption. By the way, that never would have happened were the religious leaders not allowing it to happen on their watch. Lovers of money that they were, Lucas told us previously. The temple, it was to be a, a house for all peoples, a house of prayer for the nations. That's why the outermost uh, court was known as the court of the Gentiles. And yet the temple was being profaned as it had been in the days of the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to these words, Jeremiah chapter 7. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. What are those words? This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. People had come to see the temple as they had once seen the Ark of the Covenant as some sort of lucky charm. We're the people of God. We have access to the temple of God. We're good to go. Jeremiah 7 goes on to say, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal Murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing these same abominations on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in, in, their, in their particular situation. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? There's the language of this morning's passage. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is disturbing. Sobering. It should be for we in the American South. People in Jeremiah's day, they were robbing the Lord by neglecting the sojourner, the poor, the widow, the orphan. They were good churchgoers. They regularly came to the temple to worship in their hypocrisy. As Jesus himself saw in the religious leaders and temple worshipers of his own day, as we continue to see 2,000 years later in the bustling activity of many churchgoers who remain far from Christ. In his own day, Jesus refused to stand for it. As we see him here driving the money changers from the temple... The, and, and again, similar to the word wept, where we might think that it was just a, a trickle of a tear or two, with that language being that of wailing, of audible 
wailing. Here too, the word translated drive out as Jesus is driving out these money changers, it's from the Greek word ekbalo. It's the same word used in Luke's gospel account, this very same book of the Bible, for the casting out of demons, the driving out of demons. Here not only purging the temple, Jesus is of evil. I love this. He's redeeming the temple at the same time, making the temple his very own pulpit. Look at verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Remember what Simeon said? All the way back in chapter 2, in his word of blessing over Mary and, and Joseph. Behold, this child, Jesus, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Right, Simeon knew that the, the baby resting in his arms would someday face opposition. A light exposing darkness. In the hearts of many. We see it in full force in this morning's passage. The chief priests and scribes plotting Jesus' death. Jesus all the while, what is he doing? He's teaching day after day. Crowds of people hanging on his every word. In the very same temple in which he had come face to face. Think about this. As a young boy with the realization of his identity and destiny. The lamb without blemish or spot, surrounded by a thousand paschal lambs in the temple courts. The true and greater temple who would soon be destroyed and raised three days later. Imagine what those sermons must have been like. If you knew anything of the themes of the Old Testament, if you knew anything of the imagery tracing its way throughout Scripture, my goodness. It's a precursor to Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus as Jesus unpacks the Old Testament and says, it's about me. The question for us this morning is, what, what is our response to Jesus? Is it a religious pride that awaits its fall, as we've seen was the case for many so far in Luke's gospel account? Like the rich young ruler? Or is it a humility that bows down repents of sin, and looks to Jesus in faith. Maybe today is the day of salvation, the day to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him, the day to bow at the feet of heaven's king in glad submission. Perhaps for some, the day to say, I've been coming into the temple, so to speak, in hypocrisy for a long time now, and I've been missing it. I've been on the outside of something looking in and I thought I was on the inside all the while. Maybe today is the day to make that declaration. And for we who profess to know, love, and, and follow Jesus, might I remind us that Jesus Christ no longer sits on the foal of a donkey, but rather the very throne of heaven as God's exalted king. That's why we're not silly doing what we're doing this morning. We're not singing to a dead man. We're singing to the high king of heaven. Will we offer him as we leave this place and go into the days to come? Will we offer him what's in our stable, so to speak? 
Will we lay our cloaks and palm leaves at his feet? Will we pay him the homage that he so richly deserves? Will we hang on his words as the life-giving words of a good and gracious king? I'll leave us this morning with an old 9th century hymn by Theodulf of Orleans. It goes something like this. All glory, laud, and honor to you, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet hosannas ring. You are the King of Israel and God, David's royal son, now in the Lord's name coming, our King and blessed one. The company of angels is praising you on high, and we with all creation in chorus make reply. We join those rocks. We sing louder than them. The people of the pilgrims, it says, with palms before you went, our prayer and praise and anthems before you we present. To you before your passion, they sang their hymns of praise. To you now high exalted, our melody we raise. As you receive their praises, accept our prayers we bring. For you delight in goodness, O good and gracious King.